welcome to CME on ReachMD. This CME activity, titled Treatments for Outpatients with Mild to Moderate COVID-19, is brought to you by AKH Incorporated, Advancing Knowledge in Healthcare, and the American Thoracic Society, and is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, this is Tim Albertson, Distinguished Professor of uh, Internal Medicine from the University of California, Davis in Sacramento. Uh, welcome to uh, uh, another um, episode of the uh, Rapidly Changing COVID-19, The Role of Monoclonal Antibodies uh, talk series. Um, today, we're going to be talking about the treatment for outpatients with mild to moderate COVID-19. The learning objectives are to state the role of monoclonal antibodies in the treatment of uh, coronavirus disease 2019, COVID-19 for short, and compare and contrast current monoclonal antibody treatments available in the United States via an emergency use authorization, EUA, with regard to administration, adverse events, and efficacy. Select uh, appropriate candidates for monoclonal antibody treatment for mild to moderate COVID, and uh, talk about uh, healthcare disparities and how they may affect um, the incidence and um, severity of disease uh, for this particular uh, disorder. The agenda then sort of follows. We're going to talk about an overview of uh, SARS-CoV-2, talk about monoclonal antibodies, mechanisms of actions, options, um, how they're administered, um, the adverse events associated with their use, the role of monoclonal antibodies in the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19. We'll talk more about who are the candidates for these monoclonal antibodies and um, what kind of factors we can use in selecting uh, other, the various monoclonal antibodies and other treatments that may be available. And then we will continue uh, this discussion about healthcare disparities and give a, a summary. Treatment selection, uh, treatment strategies differ for outpatients versus those with severe disease who require hospitalization. Really look at it as a continuum of two distinct stages. The early stage is mild to moderate um, stage, and this is a, an outpatient stage uh, characterized by profound viral replication of the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus requiring a some sort of antiviral therapy or symptom control. Symptom control. Uh, Antibody-based treatments that focus on uh, minimizing viral replication would be appropriate at this time frame. Um, but as we uh, that disease process moves uh, on, uh, later stages um, where the severe disease may manifest uh, often require hospitalization. At this point, really, we think we're into a hyperinflammatory state with very uh, small reproduction of viruses going on compared to the amount of amplification of an inflammation. Um, and this is more in range of uh, immunomodulator therapy time and um, um, supportive care. So there's really just two phases, and that's why, in general, monoclonal antibodies have probably been most successful in the early phases of the therapy as they relate to specific monoclonal antibodies that address COVID-2. Uh, Health disparities, 
tackle this one early on, but uh, this is not a small uh, area. This is a huge area. Uh, when we look at this uh, in terms of the risk of infection, hospitalization, uh, death by race and ethnicity, uh, you can see some profound changes here. These are all in comparison to uh, white non-Hispanic uh, persons with cases, hospitalizations all go up for uh, um, first um, um, nation uh, people, um, Asians, um, black or African-Americans and uh, Hispanic um, in all three categories, both cases and hospitalizations and deaths. The number of reasons for these disparities, uh, no single race has uh, been shown to be immune to COVID-19 uh, in the pandemic, um, but a lot of the disparities are probably related to um, lower socioeconomic status, poor uh, efforts in prevention, and uh, poor opportunities for diagnosis, management, and treatment. Pandemic, pandemic has disproportionately affected people of color, people living in poverty, people with lower socioeconomic status, and people with underlying comorbidities. Uh, the strategies, uh, um, the, the prevention strategies often are not available uh, to people who are living in um, high concentration areas. And um, um, this uh, also the failure to be able to get vaccinations into some of these communities is another reason why they probably are at increased risk. So um, minority uh, groups are often employed in uh, lower um, essential workers with continued exposure. Uh, fewer of them can work uh, from home uh, and, and limit their exposures. There's been less social distancing in our area. We have a number of uh, Asian immigrant families who are first generation. There may be 10, 15 in a single apartment um, family members. So social distance, distancing in that kind of density of living is impossible. They have less uh, access to health care. There's uh, probably going to be a more homeless uh, uh, components and, and people in, in prisons and overcrowding communities as a result. So a number of reasons are thought to contribute to these disparities. If we look at it, uh, age as another um, disparity group. Um, this is the risk of death by uh, age groups, and the relative risk of death is 10.6 uh, uh, times higher if you're 85 or older. And it certainly marches out with increasing age. So age is clearly uh, a risk factor, and uh, the death rate is dispar shows disparities there. Um, comorbidities, obesity, diabetes com with complications, chronic kidney disease, COPD, bronchiectasis, neurocognitive, um, coronary artery disease, all singularly offer an increased relative risk to um, death from COVID and uh, represent uh, another group of disparities. When you start putting these together in multiples, uh, you can see very high rates of mortality uh, with comorbidities. So racial disparities may uh, reflect the underlying health conditions that predispose to infection, such as obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, kidney disease. Some of these are found higher in specific ethnic and racial groups. Subpopulations have higher rates of medical comorbidity often. 
In retrospective uh, observational trial uh, studies have found uh, higher rates of obesity and diabetes in black patients resulted in higher rates of uh, COVID hospitalization in these groups. Early evidence reported a lower percentage of African-Americans being tested for COVID-19 and those are higher rates of, uh, thus lower rates of appropriate treatment. And uh, recent studies have found um, comparable mortality once uh, blacks and whites are hospitalized, but um, some of this, these changes occur pre-hospitalization uh, in the rates of, uh, of disparities. So lots going on in this area and it continues to evolve. Monoclonal antibodies for the treatment of COVID-19. Um, specifically, we're talking about monoclonal antibodies that are developed uh, from a single B-cell clone, uh, and they are designed to recognize a unique epitome. Uh, and, and that epitope, as it relates to COVID-19, is on the spike protein in the um, receptor binding domain here. Um, and you can see these are uh, examples of some older uh, monoclonal antibodies that are in this cartoon binding to the spike protein. Uh, with that binding, they then prevent that spike protein from linking up with the uh, angiotensin uh, converting, uh, angiotensin one converting enzyme two, um, which is the critical uh, entry point that starts the process of uh, enveloping that uh, virus inside the uh, inside the human cell to allow repro reproduction. So this is a critical component and if it can be blocked, then we can mitigate the factors that uh, will lead to severity of disease. Um, so this is the rationale of using monoclonal antibodies. And clearly by this mechanism of action, you can see that the, um, the earlier the inter with the antibodies, the better the likelihood they are to have an impact on the disease. Um, so again, this is what, pretty much what I said, the early, earlier the stage, the mechanism of action supports their interaction with the virus at an early stage to prevent the reproduction and amplification of the viruses. Uh, once the virus has uh, amplified already and uh, turned on the hyperinflammatory uh, component of this disease, then uh, it, it obviously is going to have much less of an impact on the overall outcome of the patient um, to affect um, multiplication of virus at that time. Um, an EUA, emergency use authorization, is uh, something that we haven't seen before this pandemic being used uh, so readily, but um, in the two and a half years roughly of this uh, pandemic, uh, we have seen so many drugs come and go, so many approaches come and go, so many EUAs being issued and then revoked that it really has changed dramatically. Secretary of Health for Human Services is responsible um, for ensuring that these EUAs are appropriate. And um, it is a way to bypass the formal FDA approval process that uh, literally for a new drug can take years. And as uh, we've seen here uh, in two and a half years, we've seen many, many drugs approved on the EUA and a few drugs get FDA approval. FDA approval now has been seen for a number of the vaccines and a few of the drugs um, that have been approved, but most of them are on EUA status for use in this pandemic. Um, 
one of the remaining treatments that are, uh, that are available as a monoclonal antibody in face of uh, Omicron BA.2 uh, and the various sublineages that have come off of that is bedtivolumab. And uh, this particular agent is still approved for use of adults and adolescents greater than 12 years of age with uh, weights greater than 40 kilograms. And it needs to be administered with within the first seven days of symptoms, uh, the dose of 175 milligrams uh, intravenously. Uh, so this would be an outpatient treatment for um, mild to moderate COVID uh, in the outpatient setting. There's um, at least uh, eight different monoclonal antibodies that are specific to the virus uh, that have been uh, given EUA uh, in the past or currently for COVID-19, a list of them is offered there. All are admitted as uh, injections uh, or infusions uh, and really require specialty infusion centers for the most part. Casarufimab and indivimab previously could also be given subcutaneously and this was certainly an advantage uh, for that drug when it was uh, uh, effective. Um, EUAs can be revoked and then they can be reauthorized uh, as needed. So if the virus mutates back to a point where some of these previous monoclonal antibodies were, were um, or are again effective, uh, then that EUA could be recertified. Um, as of January 24th, uh, 2022, the FDA temporarily withdrew the EUAs and stopped distribution of Kesarivimab and Divimab and uh, bamlanivimab and itizumab, uh, owing to observed ineffectiveness in the dominant uh, Omicron variant at the time. May 7th, sotrovimab uh, uh, also had uh, its EUA revoked and uh, because of its la um, lack of efficacy uh, seen in the, uh, the variants uh, available at that time. So this is sort of a summary of when they were uh, these various uh, drugs were uh, released uh, and an EUA was granted. Um, most of them that have been withdrawn were withdrawn within 12 months of their initial issuance. So um, dynamic, rapidly changing is a key uh, point in the treatment of um, COVID-19, particularly with the use of uh, monoclonal antibodies. Um, of these uh, various uh, combinations and single agents, um, only two are, st are still available. And we'll go through, the, we've already talked about one, we'll go through the other combination drug and how it plays a role in just a second. So when we look at um, bentilivimab uh, and, and its side effects, it's pretty benign. Um, Infusion-related or hypersensitive reactions in less than 0.3%, nausea in 0.8%, vomiting 0.7%, um, pruritus 0.3%, rash in 0.8%. Um, so again, extremely well tolerated. Uh, it's an IgG monoclonal antibody to the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 binds to the spike protein and blocks attachment, as I've mentioned before, with the other antibodies. It, um, it has been effective against uh, Omicron sublineages uh, also. 
this is a, a graph that's a little hard to understand, but it looks at a bunch of different uh, 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 antibodies and uh, and uh, tolivimab is uh, listed here. The further, the more dots you have to the right, uh, the more insensitive the monoclonal antibody are. These are all variants of COVID-19. And so uh, if you look at this particular one here, you can see that there's there's really nothing t uh, far to the right. And that's why uh, this agent is still approved for the outpatient treatment of mild to moderate uh, COVID-19. Um, this combination drug, um, uh, Tixagivimab and Silgatibimab, um, if you have any dyslexia, uh, monoclonal antibodies will amplify them, so I apologize in advance for mine. Um, this uh, is a vaccination, really. It is uh, prophylactic antibodies in patients um, who otherwise are not to, able to, to uh, accept um, vaccination. So these are preventive monoclonal antibodies um, that are given um, pre-exposure prophylaxis. So uh, in general population for certain individuals are either immunocompromised and the vaccine may or may not be effective um, and, and those who cannot take vaccinations. This is a very small niche, but an important niche for for prevention or mitigation of severity of COVID in compromised patients. So this would be a group of people who I'd be looking at who have received uh, maybe the Tuximab or they've this for rheumatologic issues or they have, they're on chemotherapy or they've had an adverse response to a, a vaccine and they're not able to take vaccines. Um, I think this is uh, where this particular combination of monoclonal antibodies is really very useful and very been playing a very important role. Um, this combination is a, two IgG monoclonal antibodies that are put together in combination with non-overlapping epitopes so that they can bind in uh, uh, the protein receptor binding domain of the, of the spike protein. Um, and they block then the attachment to the uh, uh, human uh, ACE2 uh, receptor. Um, they have a amino acid substitution uh, to extend their half-life. And uh, this is a key component because normally monoclonal antibodies have fairly short half-lives, 20 to 30 days. So they have to be often redosed re on a monthly basis. Um, this uh, can go as long as six months. The dosing administration is uh, two separate intramuscular injections, uh, 300 milligrams uh, of each of these uh, monoclonal antibodies. So uh, two shots uh, intramuscularly, and it can be repeated every six months if there's still significant risk of transmission. And certainly in my area, certainly in my house right now, there's a significant risk of transmission. Um, the FDA uh, in, in increased the dose in February uh, 2022 from 150 milligrams to 300 milligrams of each of these agents. Uh, this is an unstudied dose, but it was based on in vitro studies looking at the Omicron, and I'll show you some data to suggest this, why this was the case uh, in a slide or two from now. 
The original study looking at uh, this combination of uh, monoclonal antibodies was in 5,197 patients um, with roughly a two to one active to uh, placebo. And there was a profound 77% reduction in the risk of developing COVID uh, as a result. So um, this is pretty significant data and was very impressive to, to the FDA to get an EUA issued uh, quickly. Side effects, uh, pretty nonspecific, headache, fatigue, cough, um, nothing that was uh, overwhelming. Um, the, uh, there is some issues with uh, severe cardiac AEs, a slightly higher rate, 0.6% versus 0.2%. And just remind you that uh, statistics are usually not done on AEs unless they were predefined in a predefined way to collect them. So a spontaneous collection doesn't uh, allow statistical analysis, whereas if you have in your study plan put in a very detailed uh, approach to how you're going to collect AEs, let's say cardiac AEs, um, echocardiogram every month, arrhythmia, or EKG every week, something like that, um, statistical analysis. But so this is a, a warning that people should be aware of, though there may be a, a slight increase in uh, risk of cardiac AEs with uh, the use of this prophylactic um, combination of monoclonal antibodies to prevent COVID-19. And this is that same kind of uh, graph that we looked at before looking at the variants of uh, COVID-19. And uh, UV shield, shield is the name of the combination project at the top. And then each of the two specific monoclonal uh, antibodies are listed. And you can see there's still quite a lot of um, variants that are way to the right, suggesting not the greatest coverage. And that's one of the reasons why this combination therapy is not approved for acute treatment, um, but still is thought to provide a significant uh, protection on a prophylactic basis. Um, switch gears and talk about the role of monoclonal antibody um, in mild to moderate COVID uh, in more detail. And um, some of the manifestations, I think everybody's pretty comfortable with this. Uh, fever, chill, shortness of breath, cough, uh, taste and smell alterations, GI, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, these appear within two to 14 days after exposure. I think the, um, the evidence is, uh, for the Omicron variants is more towards the two-day than the 14-day at this point. Uh, may only require symptomatic supportive care, very minimal. Um, coronaviruses were summer colds in the past. And so um, um, certainly a lot of people now are, are not having the full-blown uh, symptomatology, particularly with uh, the penetrance of vaccinations in many of our communities. Mild to moderate COVID-19, if a patient is at risk of regression to severe disease, if they're manifesting mild to moderate, they may be eligible then for anti-SARS-CoV-2 monoclonal antibody therapy or oral antiviral treatments, which we will talk about. They must receive these therapies within seven days for the monoclonal antibodies and within five days for the oral agents. Um, severe COVID-19 
requiring oxygen, requiring admission to hospital and, you know, all the way to the ICU and ECMO and the whole gamut of it, unfortunate gamut. Um, they have not been shown to provide any benefit uh, with the use of monoclonal antibodies. So um, we do think the Omicron variant shortened incubation period of two to three days after exposure is, is more prominent, and that's why I mentioned that earlier. Um, upper respiratory, including nose, mouth, throat, with uh, perhaps an increase in severe sore throat. Um, headaches, dry cough, fatigue, all can be seen with, um, with the Omicron variant. Um, risk factors, age over 65, maybe even 55. Um, more than 81% of the deaths are in the age group of greater than 65. Increasing risk of death, as I've mentioned, with underlying medical conditions, increasing numbers of uh, comorbidities. Uh, lack of complete um, uh, vaccination. There still are paid people who do have breakthrough despite full vaccination. Um, but I tell you, our own experience has been uh, right now that most of our patients are coming in with COVID into the hospital for other reasons rather than the COVID. And those that are coming in who are particularly uh, severe uh, are often uh, immunocompromised or patients who have not been vaccinated or not got a full set of vac vaccinations. Children uh, and adults, particularly those with medical complexity, genetic issues, neurologic issues, metabolic conditions, certainly are also at increased risk. There's a list here of comorbidities that uh, sort of outline uh, internal medicine practice, but uh, these are all things that would put you at increased risk for uh, developing severe COVID-19, increased risk for it. Um, medical conditions or treatments that may result in moderate to severe immune compromise, as I've mentioned before, uh, put you at risk, whether that's rheumatologic diseases or hematologic solid tumors, uh, liquid tumors. Uh, it's generally um, anything that might be affecting the immune system in a way that uh, would deplete uh, B cell reactivity and T cell response. So uh, HIV patients uh, would be another group that might be uh, at uh, increased risk. Vaccines are effective. There's no question about that, um, but they are not, uh, they are not foolproof. Um, but not everybody is vaccinated. When we look at the United States, maybe 66% uh, of the entire country is fully vaccinated. And, you know, as every day goes by, um, boosters uh, aren't obtained, then people fall off that list. 77.7% have re received at least one dose, and 30.4% uh, have had boosters. So uh, really there's uh, opportunity for breakthrough um, all the time. And uh, much of that breakthrough is mild uh, to moderate disease. Disease progression from mild to severe can be rapid. So your interval for, for preventing that or at least reducing the risk of it is relatively short. And that's why the uh, interventions have such short uh, timeframes for their use. Bemtilivimab. Uh, uh, Blaze four trial randomized phase two clinical trial that uh, mostly evaluated low risk outpatients. Um, 
96% of the subjects enrolled in the treatment arm did not meet criteria for high risk. Um, they received a combination of uh, monoclonal antibodies, lenivimab and atizumab, plus uh, um, <coughs> um versus uh, the single agent alone versus placebo. And the primary endpoint was a, a proportion of subjects with uh, persistently high viral loads by day seven. And the study was designed for safety. It showed that uh, bebtilivimab uh, reduced time to sustain symptom uh, resolution to six days versus eight days. And it uh, was associated with a reduction uh, in, um, um, well, reduction in the, the time for, for a resolution, um, but a very uh, low incidence of hospitalization and death um, made it very difficult to uh, show a difference there uh, with uh, this monoclonal antibody. It does have that EUA, as we've mentioned, and um, um, patients who require increasing baseline O2 therapy due to COVID and those who previously were on chronic oxygen would also be those who would qualify. Um, it's, not, uh, it's not a drug that should be given to patients who have known hypersensitivities to any of the ingredients in the therapies um, and the FDA cautions against its use in hospitalized patients because, uh, or patients who are requiring high flow oxygen or mechanical ventilation uh, because it hasn't really been shown to have any efficacy in that group. And uh, as we talked earlier on, the mechanism of action probably uh, suggests it would not be effective once the hyperinflammatory component has uh, um, kicked in. Um, consider an antiviral, uh, the benefit most likely when given early after onset. Um, any sort of delay in diagnostic testing will blunt, potentially blunt its effect. Remember, um, testing kits now are widely available and uh, can be obtained from the federal government. Um, so kit testing should not be a limiting factor in any population, but getting the word out, having the technology to apply online to get it sent to your house, having a house to have it sent to, these are all things that might limit it. Um, monoclonal antibodies uh, and uh, the oral uh, agents are not approved for hospitalized patients at this point. Um, the post-exposure prophylaxis, separate from the pre-exposure prophylaxis, was an area in which the other two combination monoclonal antibody products uh, were approved. And when their EUAs were removed, the EUAs for acute treatment and post-exposure were, were pulled at the same time. So currently, we do not have monoclonal antibodies that have EUAs for post-exposure use um, at this time. Um, home care is all about uh, hydration, um, fever control, uh, supportive care, uh, reducing infection uh, transmission within the, the household if possible. Um, and um, there are clearly changing rules uh, regarding isolation and quarantine on a 
on a um, almost daily basis, it seems, not quite, but I mean, uh, work, uh, isolation and quarantine have changed dramatically from early in the pandemic currently. Um, some hospitals have even reached down and said uh, patient, uh, nurses who have the active COVID but are uh, on the mend can come in and wear N95 masks and still do some nursing care. Uh, these are changing rapidly, but anything that can be done in within a family, within a household, to reduce the transmission clearly is to the advantage. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, antiviral treatments. We sort of mentioned around the edges a little bit. Let's go to more in detail about this as it relates to COVID-19. Um, one of the major ways in which we can uh, affect this um, viral load early on is uh, using um, a uh, protease inhibitor. And the cartoon here shows you how a, an RNA virus in the cell uh, co-ops some of the mechanisms for reproduction of uh, RNA um, and then uh, builds itself from uh, some of the apparatuses of the intracell um, uh, matrix and endoplasmic reticulum to form uh, a new virus. Uh, one place in there, uh, there's inhibitors that can uh, prevent the the um, uh, the main uh, um, formation of the uh, of the M uh, pro uh, agent and uh, that proto critical protolytic uh, cleavage that occurs. And so those drugs have been discovered and uh, um, and have been made available. Um, the one that uh, currently is uh, uh, used, uh, one of them that is currently used is Nermotrelivir, and it's packaged with uh, uh, ritonavir uh, to slow down its metabolism. So the second agent really is, uh, is an inhibitor of metabolism to prolong the half-life. Um, this has been uh, made available after uh, a phase two, three trial showed a, a substantial uh, absolute risk reduction of 6.32% uh, with 95% confidence intervals uh, listed there of 9 to uh, 3.59. This was in 2,246 uh, patients randomized. Uh, they received um, uh, the uh, agents. Uh, this is a placebo. Um, they had at least one risk factor. and um, uh, they showed that they were substantially uh, better off with this agent than uh, without it. Um, the, the adverse events were uh, fairly minimal, 6.6 uh, .6 with placebo and 1.6 with the active uh, antiviral agent. So uh, indications for this agent now um, um, are... Um, greater than 12 years of age, um, 40 kilograms, have one risk factor for progressive diseases, and uh, less than five days, um, not on a, a pre-prophylactic uh, uh, monoclonal antibody, not hospitalized, and um, not less than 12. So um, what they're advising is uh, the use of um, uh, Mermertrilvir, um, two tablets, 300 milligrams, with 100 milligrams of ritonavir 
um, one tablet, and all three tablets taken together twice a day for five days. And um, the mechanism is again thought to uh, um, be through the uh, protease inhibition that's critical, but the ritonavir blocks the uh, cytochrome, cyto, uh, cytoplasma um, 3A4, CYP 3A4, um, and, and uh, allows the half-life to be prolonged. So a number of drug interactions can occur as a result of having the ritonavir there um, to block the metabolism. So this then uh, makes the clinician have to uh, look through and make sure that uh, uh, they're not on a number of these agents that uh, might have a significant uh, drug interaction listed on the left. And then it can also, there can be an induction um, uh, of metabolism from the combination of antivirals. And this can lead to uh, reduced levels of certain drugs on the right here. So um, these agents are not without some concern uh, and complexity and really need to be uh, thought out before they're just given. This is uh, not a Tamiflu. It needs to be really patient-specific evaluations done. Patients with uh, reduced uh, GFRs, 30 to 59 milliliters per minute, that dose uh, goes down to 150 milligrams, uh, uh, one tablet and then one tablet of the uh, ritinavir uh, twice a day. And then anything less than uh, 30 milliliters per minute uh, dialysis patients, et cetera, uh, should not be getting this drug. Another one of the uh, antiviral agents that have come out is uh, molnupiravir. And uh, this is, introduces lethal mutagenesis into the RNA virus. It has a half-life of about 3.3 hours and uh, minimal metabolism and clearances through uh, urine. Um, this was uh, the MOVE-OUT trial that got this drug at EUA. They looked at 1,433 uh, multinational patients who completed analysis. Uh, they received 800 milligrams by mouth twice a day versus placebo. They were unvaccinated, had greater than one risk greater than or equal to one risk factor. Median age was about 43, so they tended to be a little bit younger. Obesity, 74%. Relative risk reduction was about 30%. There were nine deaths in the placebo group, so that's a pretty high number for 1,433 outpatients, and one in the uh, uh, in the uh, molnupivir group. Um, the AEs that we're seeing with this drug were uh, diarrhea, 2%, nausea, 1%, and then dizziness, 1%. The FDA EUA has 200 milligram capsules dosed uh, at 800 milligrams by mouth every 12 hours for five days. You have to have the risk factor for progressive disease. You have to be within less than or equal to five days of the onset of symptoms. Um, and it has to be other appropriate treatments are not available. Um, in our area, this drug is not receiving a lot of use. Um, it's not for a prophylaxis. It's not for post-exposure. It's not for hospitalized patients. It's not for the less than 18-year-olds. And sexually active males and females, uh, it's concerning. Um, and there is some concern for uh, um, 
um, you know, genetic effects, genetic toxicity as a result. So very limited um, use in our area of this drug, but certainly important to know it's out there and available. Uh, the last antiviral I uh, wanted to chat about uh, for outpatient use in COVID-19 is uh, remdesivir. And uh, this is a drug that has been uh, proved early on in the pandemic for use in the inpatient side in the United States. The World Health Organization uh, study failed to show an efficacy, so we don't see a lot of use of it outside of the United States. A few countries have adopted it, but not many. But um, this is a use as an outpatient drug. It was a study called Pine Tree, uh, non-hospitalized within seven days of uh, symptoms, had to be over 12, had to have more than or equal to one risk factor, and unvaccinated. They were given three days of remdesivir, 200 loading dose, and then 100 second day and 100 the third day, all IV. They had 552 patients. It was terminated early. The mean age was 50. The mean symptoms were five days. 41.8% Hispanic or Latinx. Um, the adverse events appears uh, very safe, like remdesivir. Uh, the adverse events were about 42% for uh, remdesivir and 46.3% for placebo. And um, no measurable uh, virologic impact was seen, but 47 fewer hospitalizations per thousand patients treated. And there was an 87% uh, reduction in hospitalization and an 81% reduction in medical visits as a result of the use of this drug. So these are, this is a real option. And uh, we have a lot of experience with remdesivir, particularly those of us on the inpatient side. So I think uh, um, its biggest hassle is having to come in three days in a row, having to get IVs and having to get to the infusion. So the NIH recommendations uh, for patients that do not require supplemental oxygen or hospitalization is really to look at the Paxlovid combination therapy as a first line or remdesivir. Alternative therapies, according to their most recent recommendations, uh, would be to look at the IV use of a, a bebtolizumab uh, or um, the other uh, anti-oral viral agent. Uh, panel recommends against the use of dexamethasone or other systemic corticosteroids uh, in the absence of other indications as an outpatient. Um, and that certainly um, has not been completely uh, accepted by uh, practitioners, I can tell you from just looking at patients admitted to the hospital. So in summary, um, Monoclonal antibody treatments continue to evolve um, and their use have changed over the two and a half years of the pandemic. Um, their current niche is in the outpatient setting, uh, most likely because of the reproduction, a high reproduction of vi viruses going on at that period. Um, so the earlier they're administered, the most likeliness, the most likely they will be effective. The limitations of monoclonal antibodies for treatment is availability, parenteral administration, and the uh, early course of illness that are required uh, to get them. In light of Omicron BA2 variant and other variants, 
bebtilivimab is currently the only monoclonal antibody that is authorized to treat COVID-19. Other treatments, such as the oral antivirals, um, uh, Paxlovid, uh, remdesivir, et cetera, uh, should be considered uh, with very specific review of the patient's medication list and risks and potential benefits. There still is one um, combination um, monoclonal antibody that is available on EUA for pre-exposure prophylaxis and remains sufficiently a active against the BA2 variant and the other variants of Omicron to be uh, uh, to show some efficacy, although these things are changing on a daily basis. And uh, uh, what we say today may well be uh, revoked uh, within the next few days. Um, thank you very much for uh, listening to this talk and uh, would encourage you to go ahead and listen to the other two talks uh, that are, make up this uh, program on monoclonal antibodies in the treatment of COVID-19. Uh, Thank you. This activity was brought to you by AKH Incorporated, advancing knowledge in healthcare, and the American Thoracic Society, and is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. To receive your free CME credit or to view other activities in this series, go to ReachMD.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.